Many of us have a notion about the academic base of black power. A month after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, political scientist Charles Hamilton speaks during a memorial symposium. It isn't important what white decision makers say when they say we're making progress in race relations. What is important is what black people perceive. Hamilton says black power can organize black people's rage and force answers to hard questions. The system has copped out on black people and black people are not going to take it anymore. This is From the Archives, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio featuring recently rediscovered historic audio from our archives. On this episode, Charles Hamilton speaks at Grinnell College in 1968 about black power as a viable alternative. We are questioning the normative values of this society. There are many origins to the black power movement, but Charles Hamilton and his colleague Stokely Carmichael elevated with their 1967 book, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America. When Stokely and I write in our book and style this society one of institutional racism, people just sort of read over that real quickly and never come back to it. The black power era is the first time you have white identity called out for what it is. Peniel Joseph studies race and democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. He says Charles Hamilton is trying to ease racial tensions with coalitions, but also black political self-determination. He, he wants a way out of this violent, cataclysmic revolution that some people were predicting, especially after Dr. King's death. We will enter alliances with very sincere people. First, however, after we establish our own base of independent power. If the system is intrinsically racist, how are you ever going to get that kind of access? Up to now, we've been coming to whites begging, and whites have seen it in their hearts to help us or not. And more frequently than not, we've been left in the lurch. Charles Hamilton talks about using black power to usher in change on this episode of Iowa Public Radio's From the Archives. I'm John Pebble. First, I'd like to talk about black power and its relationship to two major concepts, the concept of alienation and the concept of political legitimacy. Charles Hamilton speaks at Grinnell College in April 1968. This is during a two-day memorial symposium for Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated earlier that month. In terms of a discussion of black power, it's very obvious, it's very clear that we come to a session of this kind or the topic like black power and we have certain kinds of notions what we're going to hear. Hamilton is a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He is also co-author of the book Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America, published in the fall of 1967. Well, I can uh, satisfy many of those notions by using the word honky three times in a row. Or I can shout, burn, baby, burn, right now a few times. Or I can give a quick 20 for one speech, that is to say, for every one of us, we'll get 20 of you. <laughs> and I can be done with that, but at least the record will reflect that. Hamilton urges the audience to put aside the sensational aspects that are part of this or any other movement. And we have no intention of letting anyone relate to this subject simply because it is a 
glamorous, dramatic, possibly ephemeral phenomena on the scene today. Many of us believe very clearly that the concept of black power has this firm intellectual base and it is not to be tampered with or toyed with by glamour-seeking editorial writers who see only the burn baby burn or the honky-talk. Hamilton says the legitimacy of decisions made by those in control depends on how the people making those decisions are perceived. It isn't important what white decision makers say when they say we're making progress in race relations. What is important is what black people perceive. And if it is in the life experiences and perceptions of black people that progress is in fact not being made, then those institutions will be perceived as illegitimate, all the other rhetoric notwithstanding. Hamilton says even though racial segregation is addressed in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it continues across the country. He says black people tend to mistrust the white people who have the most power in society. This society cannot continue to toy with the values and the aspirations of a people and expect that those people to continue to bestow allegiance on that society. It ain't about to happen, you see. And if then the demands get escalated from voter registration to Molotov cocktails, from freedom schools to guerrilla warfare, don't let any white American scratch his head and wonder why. It is because the system has copped out on black people and black people are not going to take it anymore. So let's just stop right now asking these irrelevant kinds of questions about Hamilton. Do you advocate violence? Baby, I don't have to advocate it. All I got to do is observe it. Because black people don't care what a, a PhD professor says on a platform to a college crowd. So if I come on here and say now, no, I do not advocate violence, do you think that's going to make any difference in Chicago on the west side this summer? Throughout his speech, Hamilton cites numerous authors and political scientists like David Apner and Sam Huntington. Hamilton says, over time, a society must undergo the process of political modernization. Any society that would opt for modernity that rests on existing values and existing structures is a dying society. So a society must constantly be in search, reevaluating values, retesting, reexamining its established institutions. He says it also requires a constant broadening of political participation. The civil rights movement is very active during this time, and Hamilton says this movement is right in its mission to eliminate segregation laws but it has a major flaw. It assumed that the existing value structure of the society was legitimate. We will not spend our time and energy socializing black people into the existing structures of this society because the existing structures of this society are institutionally racist. We say very clearly that the major institution, the major movement, questioning the values of this society is black power. Labor movement doesn't do it. The churches don't do it. You know, 
You tell me any agency or institution in this society that has called into question the values of this society, and I will have to agree with you. Tell me one. It wasn't until black power came along and began to really say this far no further, you are racist, you know. Now, once you accept that, let's get on and see if we can't work out a rapprochement. Hamilton talks about some organizations making progress, like the Association of Afro-American Educators and having black social workers working in black neighborhoods. But Hamilton says this is still small scale. Now, look, I could come on here and, you know, and turn you on and say and make, try to make you believe that this is happening in mass, you know, and that as soon as you get outside of Grinnell and, and, and move into a major urban area, you're going to be bombarded with this new black modernity. No, no, cool it now. Not really. But it's starting. It's beginning, you see. And that's why I can be so optimistic, because I see for the first time black people with skills and black people hooking up, the haves hooking up with the have-nots. I don't know where that fits in that other kind of philosophical orientation, but I see it happening. Professor and author Charles Hamilton, speaking in April 1968 at Grinnell College during a two-day memorial symposium honoring Martin Luther King, Jr. The black power era still remains one of the most fundamentally misunderstood epics in American history. Over his 30-year career, Professor Peniel Joseph has focused on black power studies. I think that speech in 1968 is Charles Hamilton at his most radical and revolutionary. Joseph says one aspect of black power is to seek solutions first with other black people. There was ideological consensus that black people needed to do for themselves. They had to be architects of their own liberation. Peniel Joseph analyzes Charles Hamilton's speech about black power in the 1960s. Next, on Iowa Public Radio's From the Archives, I'm John Pimble. Everyone says black power is basically rhetoric. You know, that we're long on language and short on action. In April 1968, Professor Charles Hamilton is part of a memorial symposium for Martin Luther King Jr. Now, a lot of this can sound very contentious and my demeanor could be one of bitterness, but let us keep in mind at all times I'm speaking about political modernization. Professor Hamilton says there are hard questions both black and white people need to put to themselves. As long as we continue to think that we are existing in a society where the institutions of decision-making are legitimate, then we shall continue to be deluding ourselves and turning on and frustrating further black people. Well, Charles Hamilton was a political scientist and a black scholar at Roosevelt University um, in Chicago, and he is a champion of black political self-determination. Peniel Joseph is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, among his many roles, he is the founding director at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. He comes to have a relationship with Stokely Carmichael in the late 1960s. And Stokely Carmichael is the person who popularizes the term black power. And it's through the relationship that Stokely has with Charles Hamilton that Hamilton really gets connected to the black power movement. And, and Stokely is really the singular figure during the civil rights black power period Carmichael and Hamilton co-authored the book Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America, 
It was released in September 1967. You'll see when you read Black Power, Stokely is constantly talking about racism and white supremacy, and Hamilton is really thinking about a way of how do we strategize our way out of this through political coalitions and coalition building and black political self-determination. When Stokely and I write in our book the first page of the first chapter in our book and style this society one of institutional racism, people just sort of read over that real quickly and never come back to it because they're waiting to see what Stokely has to say about honkies and, and burn baby burn. And the, the concept that we introduced of institutional racism does not get legitimized until the Kerner Commission report comes around and calls us white racism. And didn't give us a footnote. In March 1968, six months after Charles Hamilton and Stokely Carmichael's book is released, the Congressional Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, also known as the Kerner Commission, publishes their findings about the origins of race riots in the 60s. The Kerner Commission concluded white racism is a key factor. What was going on in the 1960s, especially in the South, is a war. It's a civil war. People don't say that. Um, I do. Stokely is a nonviolent soldier in that war. An awful lot of people see Stokely Carmichael and uh, many of the others as now on the platform shouting uh, 20 for 1 and burn baby burn. But what a lot of people fail to understand is they fail to ask the question, where was Stokely three, four, and five years ago? I'll tell you where they were. They were in Mississippi and Alabama doing Watch the Language, very systemically oriented things, like engaging in voter registration. In the early 60s, Mississippi had a long-standing tradition of intense voter intimidation aimed at black people. Stokely Carmichael was among the many to help organize black people to register to vote and participate in elections. And those black people played the game according to the rules. They were rebuffed, so they formed their own political organization called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. What else would you have them do? At the National Democratic Convention of 1964 in New Jersey, only two Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegates would be allowed to cast votes. They left in protest. And all those white liberal allies agreeing with them, but copping out at the last minute, saying, well, baby, you know, we just can't quite cut it because uh, you mess up our process. And if you really want to know when black people began to tune out of this system, date it. August 1964. Although Hamilton is arguing for black political self-determination, he recognizes the value of alliances with conditions. First of all, we will definitely not enter the kinds of alliances that we found ourselves hung up with in August of 64. We're not going to be involved in that sort of nonsense again. Secondly, let that be alliances. Sure, we'll enter alliances, but on a very clear terms that it's not just unilateral not whites bringing their altruism to us, but we must, it must be very clear that there is mutual self-interest involved here. The third, yes, we'll enter alliances on the condition that it's clearly understood that these alliances are ephemeral, and here, yes, the factions will break up and regroup from time to time. We ain't about to become nobody's puppet if I can use that double negative. And I think for Charles Hamilton, what he's so excited about is this idea of democratic pluralism there, this idea that, you know, black people just want a chance to be included 
within this pluralistic society. So when we form our own separate organizations, our political organizations, go ahead, let people call it separatism. It's the most healthy kind. We had better separate ourselves from some of these anachronistic and oppressive institutions if we want to get our minds together. These tenets of pluralism, this idea that there are these interest groups that all have their own purposes, but the goal in a democracy is to sort of knit together coalitions and collaborations where you can provide the most goods and services and equity and opportunity for your interest group. That's a great theory, but in terms of American democracy, much of what we call pluralism is actually predicated on black disadvantagement and black marginalization and black exclusion. Black teachers are meeting now, forming their own organizations, rewriting curriculums in those black high schools and those black elementary schools because they know what kinds of education is relevant for black children. They teach them every day. They live with those black communities. I think that this idea of community control and curriculum and black history and black teachers is really poignant because one of the things that he's pushing back against Professor Hamilton is that racial integration happens in very uneven ways starting in the late 60s in school districts locally in ways that expressly disadvantage black students, families, and administrators. But fundamental to all, all of this, you see, fundamental to all of this is we don't want to talk just in terms of an equitable distribution of goods and services. Those people are rioting, give them more jobs. Those people are rioting, give them more houses. Those people are rioting, give them better schools. No, 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 no. That's not just what we're talking about, because if you think only in terms of give them, give them, give them, then you are perpetuating a welfare mentality. And black people should know anything. He who giveth can also taketh away. So we are saying very clearly, as we go about the business of developing these organizations and getting them off the ground in the black community, don't you just talk in terms of an equitable distribution of goods and services. Until this society is legitimately prepared to talk in terms of an equitable distribution of decision-making power, then this society is playing at school. And that's what we're pushing for, and that's what we're going to get. Hamilton is critical of the recently published Congressional Kerner Commission report, in part because it states black power is a retreat from challenging Americans on the question of race. Hamilton says... Black power is not a retreat from, but an engagement of race. Aside from this, Peniel Joseph says most of the Kerner Commission's recommendations are things Hamilton could support. I think the reason why Charles Hamilton isn't saying, oh, this is a big deal, there's a version of reality where Bobby Kennedy becomes president and people like Charles Hamilton would have to be pressuring Bobby Kennedy to sort of very quickly end the Vietnam War and to somehow convince Congress to, to pass uh, these, these massive investments that the Kerner Commission suggests. Um, obviously, it doesn't work out that way. At this time, Democratic Senator Robert Kennedy's presidential candidacy is gaining momentum, but he was assassinated in early June. Later that year, Republican Richard Nixon is elected as the next president. But in April 1968, Hamilton's expectations for the future are very different from what becomes reality. The question is, how would I assess uh, the candidates in regard to, let's say, what, I'm what I've been talking about, black power and so forth? Well, I think that uh, uh, it's very clear who the, uh, I think that, well, Nixon is out of it. 
this is a, a great speech and it's a great time capsule because it's after the assassination of Dr. King where there's a huge amount of cynicism and depression, but it's also before the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Hamilton is really, I think, still hopeful. Um, he's still hopeful because it seems like alongside of the Kerner Commission, uh, the Kennedy candidacy, there's going to be a corner that's going to be turned where things are going to be more hopeful than they even were during the Great Society. Professor Peniel Joseph is from the University of Texas at Austin. He is the founding director at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy and has been greatly influenced by the 1967 book Hamilton co-authored about black power. On the next episode of From the Archives... Let's pass the ERA and move on. But I will tell you flatly that ERA is not going to solve any of your problems. In the 1970s, 38 states needed to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment for it to be part of the Constitution. During this time, there are debates about the ERA's merits across the country. It does not give any rights to women. Including one in Iowa between opponent Phyllis Schlafly and Karen DeCrow from the National Organization for Women. Human rights issues are not debatable, and the Equal Rights Amendment should not be debatable. From the Archives is a podcast exploring significant points in history that took place in Iowa through recently rediscovered recordings from Iowa Public Radio's archive. I'm your host, John Pemble. Producing this series with me is Catherine Perkins, Caitlin Troutman, and Rick Brewer. Additional help comes from Matt Siren, Dennis Reese, Andrea Hansen, and Jordan Bonson. Funding comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Subscribe to this series and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. From the Archives is a production of Iowa Public Radio.